Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to the Free Marketeers podcast. My name is Chris. I'm the project manager at the foundation. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, someone I've wanted to have on for at least the last year, ever since I heard that maybe we'll get forced vaccinations all around the world. Uh, someone who I wanted to pick his legal mind a bit about this whole issue of vaccines and some moral and philosophical implications as well of a, a worldwide vaccine rollout. So today we have Mark Oppenheimer on the channel. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Absolute pleasure. A little bit of background for the listeners and viewers. Uh, Mark is an advocate at the Johannesburg Bar. He has a special interest in commercial disputes, municipal law, and constitutional law. He has published articles about property rights, freedom of expression, and affirmative action, and he's been called upon for legal commentary on both TV and radio. He has produced submissions to Parliament, the Human Rights Commission, and the United Nations Committee for the Elimination of racial discrimination. Now, Mark, before I keep on going and going on your CV, I thought I would ask you the first question for today. So we yesterday we had the latest update around the vaccine rollout in South Africa. It seems like the AstraZeneca um, vaccine isn't as, um, doesn't have as much potential for the South African variant of COVID-19 as initially thought. So we're gonna pivot now to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine there might be a mix of the two um that kind of thing i thought we'd start off just your your basic overview thoughts around south africa's vaccine rollout program where things are at the moment um you know you don't have to go into details and tell me how many vaccines each province will get but just your your broad thoughts on where south africa is at the moment well i suppose one of the concerns is that it's taken a while to get a sense of what our rollout program will look like um, it sounds rather ambitious. I think government has this view that it can do everything on its own, um, that it has a centralized uh, mindset. And um, I'm very concerned about um, government's attitude towards procurement. So the idea that it shall be the sole procurer um, and that it will forbid um, private organizations from procuring strikes me as um, dangerous uh, and, and immoral. So I think if you care about um, if you care about saving lives and you care about ending the pandemic as quickly as possible, you want to have multiple sources of procurement. Now, I gather that some of the arguments in favor of a centralized approach, the one might be that you can get a good price as a government if you can sort of negotiate on behalf of lots of people. Um, the other one is that you don't want a situation where only some subset of your society is able to get the vaccines while others aren't. But what you might find in South Africa, for example, is that you know we have quite a well-established medical aid system, which can procure on behalf of millions of people. So it can go and get its own benefits. Also, every vaccine that's bought for a medical aid scheme member really means one less vaccine that needs to be bought by the state. Um, so being able to run these things in parallel makes an enormous difference for speeding up the process uh, and for ensuring that you know everyone really gets access. Um, I was thinking about that issue with the European Union and Britain, because in the EU, they've, they've hit some, some hitches at the moment um, with the AstraZeneca vaccine, especially, and just the, the amount that that, that that partnership with Oxford University promised to roll out. And now the EU is sort of fighting amongst themselves. The commission that was set up to, to obtain the vaccine is fighting with AstraZeneca and then with each other. Meanwhile, the UK is... I guess on a bit of a better path compared to the EU on average on their daily uh, vaccination rate as it were. But looking at South Africa, do you think 
you know, we've got the issue of the Western Cape to use an example, specific specific example. They there's been talk from Premier Alan Windy that they are going to try and procure the vaccine on their own and roll it out and um, I guess focus on back on on healthcare workers in the Western Cape first before distributing it to other provinces. I'm sure they would if they had um, more doses than they need. So theoretically, do you think a federalized system in South Africa might work if you have different provinces procuring that kind of thing? Whether that happens or not, you can comment on as well. I don't know if the Western Cape is actually going to be able to pull this through, you know, legally speaking. Sure. So there's the question as to, you know, what is the political will on this question? So um, as far as I understand, national government wants to do it nationally as opposed to federally. And part of the reason for doing that is that they're concerned about corruption um, if it's not done nationally. So that seems to be the sort of view that, well, some of the provinces which have a history of corruption, and I mean, have a recent history on PPE tender scams and things like that, um, the concern is that, that if they're doing their own procuring, that that'll give um, all sorts of room for shenanigans. Now, I think it's very unlikely that you're going to find corruption in the Western Cape. Um, in fact, uh, because that's because the province is run by different political parties, the ANC, they have every reason to try and be as efficient as possible. Now, Herein lies the rub. In other words, the ANC doesn't want to be shown up by the DA. In other words, if the Western Cape has a very smooth rollout and they're able to ensure that very rapidly citizens are able to get access to a vaccine while it flounders in the rest of the country, you know, that may cost them votes in the upcoming election. And so what the ANC might be doing then um, through the guise of centralization through national government is to deny that opportunity because they don't want to be shown up. Now, that just strikes me as absolutely abhorrent. Um, so I think what you want to be doing as national government is trying to be as efficient as possible. And maybe that means adjudicating things on a case by case basis. So those provinces that have a history of corruption, you you might not, um, you know, want to allow them to procure. Um, or you might want to put certain safeguards in place to ensure that they can't procure corruptly. Um, but I think taking a blanket approach um, to all provinces um, would be a serious problem. And I also think we should keep in mind always that the same government that professes to promise us this unprecedented vaccine rollout scheme of in history, in the context of history, is also telling us that um, it's going to run an efficient national health insurance. So that's always something I think people should keep in mind. The proof is in the pudding, as it were. So it's not just these ideological discussions around centralization, ANC, DA, that kind of thing, but the sort of ideology you hold determines the policies that you implement. And if the current sort of stance of things tells us anything, it's that the NHI is not going to be particularly effective. But I'm not going to ask you to be a soothsayer because I'm sure that's a bet you'd be willing to take and saying the NHI isn't going to be that effective. Um, Mark, I wanted to ask you, let's presume that South Africa gets some amount of vaccines at some point, um, sort of magically. People's concerns around whether they can be forced to take it or not. I know, I know the government has said that they won't force people to take it. What about your employer? What about you know an airline if you want to fly somewhere internationally? Maybe what if you want to go to a concert? Let's say we get back to concerts or or uh, attended sports events uh, in South Africa. We had the Super Bowl yesterday in the US, and they allowed some capacity, but in South Africa at the moment with sports matches, you still don't have fans in the stadium. So. What are people's rights around that? Can, for example, your employer force you to take the vaccine? Well, I think it's an open question. Um, so government is taking the view that people won't be forced by the government into taking a vaccine. 
Now, there are some people who uh, can't take it. In other words, the, one of the reasons why you want uh, wide vaccinations is that you can build up herd immunity precisely for those that are unable to take a vaccine. So there are people who are immunocompromised uh, or have severe allergic reactions who aren't able to take a vaccine. Um, and the idea is what you want to do is have enough of people who are able to take a vaccine to take it so that those who can't are protected through the herd immunity effect. Now, it's not unprecedented for um, nations to demand that you vaccinate before you visit. So, for example, if you go to Zanzibar, you have to take a yellow fever vaccine. Um, now, one of the, if you're thinking about it as a sort of rights exercise, you know, you have a, a right to privacy in the Constitution um, and a right to bodily integrity. And so the idea that you could be forced against your will um, to take a substance um, would violate those rights. Now, one of the questions is, is that merely a right against the state or is that going to be a right against other private actors? Um, now, you, what you might have is a situation where some people say, look, I, I cannot take the vaccine, but um, you know, I should be allowed to participate in society as an um, uh, you know, as an ordinary citizen, and if you're discriminating against me, you're discriminating on the on the grounds of um, either my um, firmly held belief, so a sort of right to conscience and belief, also a constitutional right. In other words, you could have someone who says, um, I don't believe in taking the vaccine for X, Y, Z reasons, uh, or you're discriminating on the grounds of someone's health status. Now, our constitution has discrimination clauses, and what we found is that HIV has... As a, as a grounds for discrimination has moved into some of the uh, equality legislation. Um, and I suppose this is because we had a large stigma around HIV at a point in time. And, you know, it was a vulnerable population that you wanted to protect. The question is whether, let's say, those that refuse to take a vaccine are an analogous group or not. Um, I think there, there is going to be an in-principle difference between the irrational anti-vaxxer and the, the person who says, look, it is a risk for me. Um, I am a vulnerable person. If I take this vaccine, it's going to cause me harm. And, you know, I am objecting for good reasons. Um, and we might think that there's a difference between those two things. The other one is that, you know, organizations may be able to set their own terms and conditions. So, um, you know, whenever you um, use, a, use an app of the App Store, you know, you're agreeing to a, a set of conditions around, you know, how your data will be used, privacy considerations, you know, you're agreeing to the rules of their game. And the question is, how many private actors should be entitled to do that on the grounds of vaccines? Now, then there's the moral question. So, as I say, part of the reason why you want people to widely vaccinate, even if they themselves are very unlikely to get a severe case of COVID, um, is to protect those that cannot vaccinate. So, you're asking people to, to take on a risk, a, a very minor risk. I mean, vaccines do pose a risk. Um, but, you know, it's vanishingly small in comparison to the, the risks posed by, by the disease. Um, but you're asking them to take, take it on for the benefit of others. And the question is whether you should be allowed to force people to do things for the benefit of others. So generally, we think, you know, you can be told not to engage in um, behavior that harms other people through your active measures. So in other words, we don't have a problem with saying it's illegal to steal, to kill, to assault. Um, we generally sort of frown on laws that are meant to protect you from yourself. Um, so in other words, we say, you know, 
I'm an adult, uh, I'm an agent, I can make decisions about my own life. If I want to do things that are bad for me, well, that should be my choice. In other words, if I want to eat fatty foods, if I want to um, smoke cigarettes in my lounge, um, you know, those are my choices. Um, now, what muddies the water with some of those things is when there's an external cost to your choices. So when you have a big public healthcare system, you know, the argument is, well, it's not just your choice because you're going to get a heart attack because you ate all those hamburgers, you know, you're going to take up a hospital bed. And so we've seen government, um, you know, during the pandemic, restrict all sorts of um, behaviors on the grounds that your private choice will have an external effect. So we're not going to let you drink. We're not going to let you smoke um, because it'll deprive others. Um, so the, the reason is not a paternalistic reason. It's to protect other citizens. Um, now... The question is whether vac you know, whether forcibly requiring people to take vaccines um, has this moral justification. The other one is a practical justification, which is if the state tells you to do something like that, it could have a backfire effect. So you could have a lot of people saying, you know, I don't trust this. Um, I don't want to be told by a government what has to be put in my body. And so people who might have taken it voluntarily will not refuse to do so. In South Africa, it's probably a bit of a moot point in the sense that um, it's going to take quite a long time before you and I get access to a vaccine. I mean, you know, the government view will be it's either towards the end of this year or the beginning of next year. It may be far in the future. Um, so uh, I think the practical idea of saying we're not going to force anybody, um, you know, will encourage people to sort of take a, maybe some people will take a bit of a wait and see approach. Okay, how bad are the side effects? Can I live with that? You know, um, does it seem to be having a good impact on suppressing the virus? And then people will be volunteering themselves to, to take the vaccine. Your point on, you know, my personal behavior having negative effects possibly on other people on the state kind of thing. Could one go from there and extrapolate an argument then against something like a large collective public healthcare system? Because the state then is taking on the risk of, for example, providing certain services so you know one will run into the argument but then for example poorer people won't have access to healthcare if it's not collectively funded or collectively pooled but i just wanted to get your thoughts on on that sort of one tangent of it a bit is if the state is going to portend to provide all manner of goods and services then is it right that it should deprive certain citizens of their rights in the interest of providing those goods and services down the line yeah, it seems like there could be a couple of ways you could deal with it. The one, as you say, is you create this moral hazard whenever you have public goods like public health care because you end up interfering in other places so that you know you can protect the healthcare system. And I mean, that's what we found lockdowns have been, right? It's this sort of idea of we can interfere with um, people's rights massively because we need to protect this public good of the healthcare system. If it was merely private goods, in other words, if you only had private health care in a country, you might find that... Um, you know, you will just have people that that system ramping up. Um, in other words, you've got private incentives. You'd have people saying, "Okay, we need to hire more doctors. We need to build more places, more field hospitals," um, and it's not a public good that's being taken away from anyone. Um, and so, the ordinary market principles um, might then operate. The other way of thinking about it is, given that we do have um, public hospitals and private hospitals, um, are there ways to um, to deal with it without infringing on people's rights? Um, or infringing on them in lesser ways. So the one is you have syntaxes. So you say, okay, we're going to charge more for booze and cigarettes um, and maybe for fast foods, like we have a sugar tax, for example. Um, and the idea would be that you then ring fence those amounts 
um, specifically for, uh, for healthcare reasons. Now, in practice, we just don't do that. So we have the syntaxes, but they go into the fiscus. Um, and, you know, they get um, spent on all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful things, um, often misspent. Then you also run into the argument around proposals for what about a wealth tax and that kind of thing. And then my sort of counter is, well, I mean, is the government really spending what what fiscus sort of room it has on service delivery or not? I mean, is there any real point in punishing certain people with a high income kind of thing if the government is, is not being effective in what it's collecting right now? I'd, read something this morning on the Daily Maverick, I think it was in the newspaper as well this weekend, just around how much we're losing because of the growth of the illicit um, trade in tobacco and alcohol. And that's a result of, of the lockdown. I wanted to ask you a bit about intended and unintended consequences. And you touched on this with, if the government said, you know, we're gonna hold a gun to your head and f force the needle into your arm and give you the vaccine, there will be much more vaccine resist resistance as it were. So, you know, not to give the central plan as tips, but what do you think about that aspect of unintended consequences and sort of human behavior and government thinking one size fits all, it's going to work kind of thing. Would it have worked better to have uh, an, a, one approach in the northern part of South Africa and another approach in the southern part? You know, should it be up to each municipality kind of thing? Is that way much of too much of a mess? What do you think? Okay, so I suppose a couple of things. The one is, as you as you point out, unintended consequences are important, you know. And and I think what you have with central planning is that they're able to foresee a little bit down the track, um, but they can't see all the ramifications. And so you can wind up with these um, these effects that are much worse than the thing that you intended. Um, and some of that means being sensitive to information. So in other words, um, you could run your own experiments. So, for example, as you say, like you could have a highly federalized approach or highly localized approach where you sort of allow uh, different local authorities to set their own rules and you see what happens. Um, and then you gather data and say, well, it turns out that um, the backfire effect is very strong and therefore we should abandon the policy. Uh, or you say, oh, well, it turns out the backfire effect isn't there at all. Um, and, you know, mandating this has all these positive effects, uh, assuming that you only care about, um, you know, consequences like vaccination as opposed to, you know, um, the rights infringement question about forcing needles in someone's arm. The other way to operate is to, I suppose, observe what other countries are doing um, and abide by some kind of international practice. So that's the, the opposite of the localized approach. In other words, it's some kind of highly globalized approach. In other words, if you have the World Health Organization setting a norm about how things are done and you have lots of countries, you know, uh, agreeing to that, um, well, then you don't have the experiment. Um, and the worry, of course, is that the norm could be set the wrong way. So, for example, almost all countries have instituted very hard lockdowns. Um, and we've probably had a domino effect because of that. In other words, because these countries are doing it, I guess we should do it too. I mean, it would be an interesting parallel world if the virus didn't start in China, which is highly authoritarian and used you know, extreme lockdown measures. If it had happened somewhere else, um, and they'd taken a, a different kind of approach, you know, the dominoes might have fallen differently. I wanted to ask you a bit about what the constitution says about quote unquote public goods. And, you know, this to me is gonna send a, a chill down my spine because I don't like talking about utilitarian things. But um, how, what does the constitution say about public goods taking precedence over individual sort of rights or concerns? Is there a 
a calculation that a court would do, for example, you know, as we touched on earlier with your employer, perhaps telling you that you have to take the vaccine, otherwise you'll, you'll, you know, receive your letter of dismissal kind of thing. What, what protections are there in the constitution for the public good versus individual concerns discussion? Sure. So the one is, if you look at the way that the rights are drafted in the constitution, um, often the socioeconomic rights are drafted in a sense of, um, we should increase access to this thing. So in other words, um, the state should take active steps to ensure that everyone has access to healthcare or housing or water. Um, now, the other way of, of looking at it is if you look at Section 36 of the Constitution, which is the limitations clause, it talks about being able to limit, um, let's say, your your civil and political rights or all rights. Um, so let's say, for example, your right to privacy, you can limit it through a law of general application, provided that it's reasonable and justifiable to do so in an open and democratic country. And then you follow a basic proportionality test. So you look at how important is the right? How severe is the restriction? How important is the purpose that you're trying to achieve? And are there less restrictive means? So you could have a balancing act going on there. Um, so we've seen a little bit of this happen in the case of cigarettes. So um, there is a decision from the um, Western Cape's High Court's full bench um, saying that the way to determine how you, um, when you're looking at the validity of a regulation, in this case, one that bans cigarettes, is it's not just a mere rationality test. So a rationality test would require you to say, is there a link between the law and the thing we want to achieve? And the thing we want to achieve is saving lives, right? And so all I need to show is that one life got saved because we banned cigarettes and therefore it's rational. But it could be highly disproportionate because of all the rights infringements that are going on. So the economic consequences, people's right to you know, trade and industry, um, people's right to dignity, um, privacy, all those sort of things get jettisoned because you can just show this mere rational link to one life. And the court said, you can't do that. You must go through the Section 36 analysis. Um, and and part of the reasoning there was to say, look, the link is also very tenuous. So it's not clear that a temporary ban on cigarettes will save many lives at all. Um, it's really the lifelong use of smoking that makes you more vulnerable to COVID and more likely to wind up in hospital bed, as opposed to, you know, if you stop someone from smoking for a few months, it's not clear that it's going to assist um, them much or the, or the healthcare system much. And even if it does produce, um, the, the court does a kind of calculation about how many beds you could create, you know, they then weigh that up against all the fundamental rights and say that, you know, it doesn't pass the weighing up exercise. So you might think, um, you know, that's a very concrete example of the public good of the healthcare system versus fundamental rights on the other hand. You touched on some of the regulations that we've had. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, one, one doesn't want to get too negative looking forward, but a lot of the discussion around COVID-19 and lockdowns has been how easy it's been for governments to take away people's civil liberties and economic freedom. So given we had stuff such as the ban on the sale of, um, of chicken, uh, certain clothing items, that kind of thing, how much protection do you think we have from the South African constitution? I know there's different interpretations on how good the constitution is or not kind of thing, but I wanted to get your take on looking forward. You know, we have, for example, the state of disaster that keeps on being propagated every month almost. Uh, is there a point at which, you know, it ends uh, that the constitution allows for, or is this sort of something that can just continue ad infinitum? Yeah, so if you look at um, section 38 of our constitution, it talks about states of emergency. And a state of emergency, if declared by the government, 
cannot be indefinite. Um, it requires parliamentary oversight, um, but it allows um, huge limitations on the rights and the Bill of Rights. Now, our government didn't declare a state of emergency. Instead, they declared a state of disaster, which is run by the Act, um, which means that all the rights are still alive. And that's why a court can use Section 36 to do that limitations analysis and say this regulation is um, unconstitutional. Um, if you declared a state of emergency, you couldn't do that uh, because the government would be allowed to limit those rights. But the concern that we've had is that we've had this indefinite state of disaster um, without the parliamentary oversight. Um, and government has acted as if the rights in the Bill of Rights aren't present. I mean, the sort of intrusions on people's liberties have been extreme. Um, you know, if you look back at the early days of the pandemic, when people were basically only allowed to leave their homes for a couple of hours a day, um, and the kinds of exercise that you're able to perform were limited by the government. I mean, this is, I mean, I don't know if you've ever read, um, uh, you know, The Road to Serfdom, um, but there's a an animated um, graphic novel version that was produced as well. Uh, and it talks about government-regulated exercise. And that just struck me as far too prescient for my liking. You know, this idea that the state knows best and there are certain kinds of exercise that you are allowed to do and the others are forbidden. So if you wanted to, you know, run or jog or cycle, that was okay. If you wanted to do Pilates outside or, you know, if you wanted to surf, well, then you couldn't because the state says no. Um, and we, we've seen like, you know, as you say, like banning of... Um, of buying rotisserie chickens from from Woolies, um, you know this sort of irrational stuff. I mean, one of them that was, to my mind, completely and utterly um, bizarre, was, you know, the restriction on which businesses were allowed to operate. So only essential businesses could operate, right? Um, and then what what would happen was that any business that dealt with their stock online was also required to um, abide by this essential services rule. So even though people weren't having contact because you're buying a, you know, I don't know, a computer part or a, whatever it is you wanted to buy from Take A Lot, you couldn't because it was non-essential. Um, you know, you had this huge impact on the economy in a way that was utterly irrational. And, you know, if you're going to deny businesses that ability to operate in brick and mortar stores to save lives, to reduce contact, well, at least let them operate online. And the government line was something like, well, it's unfair to all the brick and mortar stores to allow the online guys to operate. So that sort of notion of, uh, you know, equality of outcomes to lower everybody to the same level, you know, can have this horrible effect on the economy. And so, um, you know, the, the reason why government ultimately backed down on that, I acted for a client in it and we said, look, you're forgetting that brick and mortar stores can shift their business online. You know, they can start selling online. And so you'll give them that avenue. And they said, oh, yeah, we didn't think about that. All right, cool. We'll change the regulation. Um, so this is, as you say, the problem with the central panel. They can't think about the consequences of the consequences. And often they're ideologically motivated and they do these, you know, horrible things that will have horrible consequences down the track. This is a bit of an abstract question, but I wanted to ask you about the state's own legitimacy and maybe how it has undermined itself through some of the examples that we've both mentioned now. So, you know, the idea of the social contract, um, this feeds into stuff like, should you pay your taxes or not? But just your thoughts on the last year or so, and maybe looking forward, how the South African government, and you can touch on others as well as examples, but how they've maybe undermined their own legitimacy in society and where the people, you know, once things return to quote unquote normal, and I know, you know, that might never happen, but 
if people will then adhere to certain new regulations kind of i'm sure we'll get stuff like increased alcohol taxes maybe sugar taxes that kind of thing maybe the state is setting itself up now for failure in the future well on this point so i wrote a book with jason Weberlove called uh, lockdown did government do the right thing and it's divided into two parts so the first part was looking at the kind of moral justifications around lockdowns, um, you know, looking at the kind of utilitarian framework. So, you know, are you going to yield um, net positive from lockdowns? Um, you know, who, who can you, what kinds of goods can you achieve through it? You know, comparing it to a rights uh, framework. And the second half of the book is around political legitimacy. So and we looked at a couple of different models around, you know, on what basis would it be legitimate for the state to have these kinds of dramatic inter interferences in people's rights. Um, and so we start off by looking at, you know, kind of classical liberal philosopher like John Rawls. Um, he's got this, this great thought experiment where he says, imagine that you're lying in a hospital bed and you wake up and you're covered head to toe in bandages and you've got quite a severe case of amnesia. So you can't remember your name, uh, your sex, your race, your age. Um, but you have a basic understanding of economics and human psychology. And uh, as you're kind of coming to, a doctor walks into the room and he says, I'm going to give you a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm going to let you set the rules for the world that you walk into. Um, and then we're going to take the bandages off. And so what it does is make you want to legislate in a way that's in your rational self-interest. So you wouldn't want to produce a racist or a sexist law because you might be in that race or that sex or the religion or whatever it is. Um, and we thought about that as an interesting way of thinking about, well, would I want to be in a, in a world with um, hard lockdown rules? What if I'm someone who's got a comorbidity? Um, you know, and I, if I get COVID because there aren't lockdowns, I'm going to die. Um, and so thinking about your sort of threshold for risk. The other one is what happens if I'm someone who works in an industry that's going to be driven out of business and I'm going to die of starvation. Um, so we use that part as our framework. Um, Jason takes a very extreme view. So he's an anarchist and he thinks the state can never be legitimate. Uh, it, it can never uh, interfere with, um, with individuals, um, you know, sort of ability to conduct their own lives. Um, and he thinks he takes the view that lockdowns may very well be moral because they lead to good consequences he's a utilitarian um, but he thinks they're legitimate now on this sort of more local question about well what's going to happen in our world in terms of legitimacy i think they're probably going to be a variety of views i think some people are going to feel that governments did the wrong thing and because of that it was illegitimate others are going to feel that well maybe they did the wrong thing but it was reasonable to do at the time given what was known in other words it wasn't reasonable given all the facts but you know uh given the information available it was fair um and we we may find that i mean so for example if you look at um, what happened in new zealand which had you know very strict lockdown rules um you know they've taken an eradication approach to the virus um and you know have succeeded to some extent in, in eradicating it although at enormous costs because they've cut themselves off from the globe um their citizens you know voted resoundingly in favor of the prime minister um, and supported it so there the view was you did the you did the thing that we thought was right and legitimate um but you may find that other countries that have overreached um will get a beating in the elections and in south africa i mean we've got elections coming up um between august and november um, despite calls from the ANC and the EFF to have them postponed. Um, but 
if we have those elections, it'll be partly a referendum on, you know, government's response, you know, um, to the pandemic. And it'll be interesting to see um, how people who've been driven into into mass poverty, we've lost 3 million jobs, um, you know, because of lockdown regulations, how many of those people are happy to vote in the current current government? You've given me a gap now. So something non-vaccine related, and if you want to sort of comment on it, but uh, in terms of the po possible postponement of the local government elections, is there any precedent for that kind of thing? Could the could could the country do that kind of thing? Will it up, be up to Parliament? Um, uh, that's an issue that's been on my mind a bit, and I wanted to know from you whether that sort of thing could happen. Sure. So um, our constitution is quite clear about um, about elections, and so Section 159 talks about having um, municipal elections every five years. Um, and section one of the constitution, which is a sort of uh, particularly strong clause because it requires 75% to change it, talks about South Africa being a nation founded on the value of regular elections. So you, there is some leeway built in. So I made mention of the fact that the elections could happen between August and November. So there is 90 days um, that you could have because there may be good reasons why you need to postpone. And some countries um, have postponed. So New Zealand, for example, postponed their elections, but only for a period of three weeks. And the reason why they postponed them was because their lockdown rules made it hard for people to um, run political rallies. Um, and so the opposition said, look, we need more time. Um, and so they had that extension. What the ANC and the EFF are proposing is to merge the election cycles. So to push out this year's election to 2024, which will be a postponement of three years. Now they can't do that unless they change the constitution. And the EFF have said that they intend on introducing a private members bill. Now, what that would require would be either a two-thirds majority to change Section 159, uh, or arguably that supermajority of 75%, because you'd be deviating from this idea of regular elections. Um, so, and you have to meet all the public participation requirements. And if you think about, you know, the latest proposal change to the Constitution being the the 18th Amendment to remove. Uh, um, some of our property rights, the law for expropriation, our compensation, you know, that process has gone on for years um, and required an enormous amount of public participation. Um, and obviously regular elections go to the heart of your democracy and the idea that you could just, you know, push that through um, strikes me as unconscionable. Um, and if it were pushed through, it might not pass constitutional muster. So um, Martin von Staden is very keen on this idea of there being a basic structure to constitutions. Um, and that that sort of thing, in other words, you cease to have a constitution once you alter it um, beyond a certain point. Um, and so having irregular election cycles um, might make, you know, be it so incoherent with our current constitution that the constitutional court would say we can't allow the change. Now, what's the reason for the change? Well, the line is, you know, um, people standing up, standing in queues is going to be a super spreader event. Um, and so we need to need to push out. So a couple of thoughts on this. The one is that um, you know government intends on vaccinating 40 million people by the end of the year on their own timeline. So by the time you get to November, you know you really shouldn't have um, the health crisis concern. Um, so it might be government showing its hand that it doesn't actually think it could do it by then. The other one is go to the post office. What are you going to see? You're going to see hundreds of people waiting in Sasakis. Um So in other words, we already have a situation where you know government is handing out COVID relief packages to people that are poor, um, and they're standing in long queues. 
just like they would be, you know, through an election. Um, so it's disingenuous to claim we can't have anyone standing in the queue when it's already happening. Um, so the trick really is for the ISCs to take into account um, health and safety considerations. And the other one is that you 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 might need to consider the um, questions around um, running big public gatherings. So the IC have postponed some by-elections on the basis that they said parties couldn't couldn't run rallies because of the current lockdown rules. Um, and so that's a consideration that needs to be taken into account. Um, but really, you've got that 90-day window to push things out, um, and you cannot go beyond that unless you're in the Constitution. And my view is that that's unlikely. Perhaps just as we had last month, the use of water cannons on some Sasa grant recipients will have the same uh, in the election if you're if the sort of officials there find out that you're voting for the quote unquote wrong party, maybe they'll turn water cannons on voters in that capacity as well. Uh, Mark, just another sort of philosophical question I had was around the diluting watering down of the concept of criminality and Martin and I have discussed this a bit and I want to get your thoughts. So going back to the vaccines and lockdowns idea and the, some of those irrational regulations is that the danger not that the state is steadily chipping away at serious crimes and serious you know things that we would I guess throughout history take as deeply moral and illegal crimes for example murder or theft that kind of thing by propagating some of these irregular um and irrational regulations. Yeah, I think you're right. You wind up with a scofflaw problem. So, you know, one way that you maintain civility in a society is that people have respect for, you know, for those in authority. So they say, I trust that um, the courts are fair, that the crimes that are on the statute books, um, you know, are, are proper crimes. Um, and, you know, when you don't have that, you have civil disobedience. So we've had, you know, South Africa's got a history of unjust laws on the books. So, for example, if you think about, you know, racially segregated beaches, um, you know, you had people um, defying those laws on purpose to shame the government, you know. Um, so, you know, people sort of burning their passes um, or, you know, staging sit-ins um, peacefully so that the state would rear its ugly face and arrest them and show the unjustness of the laws. Now, I think if you have a situation like we've had where we've criminalized so much ordinary activity, um, people stop having faith in the legal system. And the worry with that is if you no longer see the government as a legitimate um, legal or moral authority, well, then you start to say, well, why should I abide by some of the other laws? Um, so, you know, you might think, for example, that some amount of taxation is justifiable by a government. That you know you've got to pay for you know even if you're a monarchist you think you've got to pay for the courts or the police um, or border control and that taxation is required for that. But um, once the state starts stealing your tax money, as we've discussed, you start to say, well, you know, I, I now feel justified in not paying my taxes, uh, so I'm going to evade because I don't trust this authority is no longer legitimate. Um, and so you might similarly find that with all sorts of other kinds of offences, and you say, well, why should I trust you? you know, on, you know, all these other rules that you have when the rules that you are so doggedly implementing just strike us as unjust. So, I mean, we've recently had civil disobedience on the grounds of, you know, people going to beaches and saying this is an outdoor area. Um, it's very unlikely to be a super spreader event. Um, this is massive government overreach. And, um, you know, you had police stationed on beaches and citizens overwhelmed them and the police backed down um, and government sort of then removed the restriction. Um, and that brinkmanship game can become quite dangerous. 
Um, you know, there becomes a point when your citizens get so upset that, uh, you know, they in, invade your capital building um, or they, you know, they take uh, stronger measures. I think it'll be very interesting and, you know, to, to maybe miss, not misquote, but misapply the quote in this context. But we live in the best of times and the worst of times. And I guess we'll see how it shakes out in coming months and years. Mark, any sort of parting thoughts, pearls of wisdom, uh, anything that you recommend citizens keep in mind going forward around the lockdown and maybe public participation, that kind of thing? It feels like we're sort of assailed by all sorts of concerns at the moment. We have EWC, as you mentioned, possible other changes to the constitution and people, citizens might feel that, you know, there's only so much they can do up to a point and then what's the, what's the point further than that? But any sort of parting, I guess, uh, motivation that you can give us? I think one thing we can do as South Africans is be quite proud of civil society. So there has been quite impressive pushback against some of the more pernicious rules that government has put in place. And I think we haven't seen that in other countries. A lot of other countries have been much more uh, obedient, um, much less likely to, um, to engage in legal action to push back against their own onerous measures. And I think maybe as South Africans, we have a healthy distrust of the state. And because we've been, you know, um, brutalized by the state for a long history in South Africa, uh, civil society organizations have had to, you know, build themselves up. Um, so we're anti-fragile in some ways. Um, and I would say that as a citizen, if you feel like your rights are being diminished and you feel voiceless, well, one way to do something is to assist those organizations that are fighting on your behalf. So if you think about the organizations like uh, AfriForum Solidarity, you know, the IRR, the Free Market Foundation, um, you know, they've taken very strong measures to push back against some of the government overreach and have engaged in a lot of litigation. You know, South Africa as well has played an enormous role um, in ensuring that South Africans' rights are protected um, through a number of litigation efforts. And I think, um, you know, if you feel like your rights are being violated and you'd like to do something, you know, pick one of those organizations um, and give them your money or give them your support in some other kind of way, help champion their causes. Um, because we can't really do it on our own. Uh, we do require this um, larger um, unity uh, so that we can push back against some of these um, more dangerous restrictions on our rights. Yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind maybe the, the fight for, for individual rights and liberty is never ending, as it were. We should never assume that we've reached the final destination and we can rest on our laurels kind of thing. Um, but on that note, Mark, I wanted to to thank you very much for your, your time and your insights today. Absolute pleasure. Uh, viewers and listeners, we hope you enjoyed this latest episode. As with all our episodes, if you did, please like, uh, share the video all over your social media channels. And also remember to subscribe to our channel. You can also find all of our latest articles, press releases, submissions, everything else on our website at www.freemarketfoundation.com. Uh, please keep an eye out for upcoming episodes. We have quite a few exciting things coming in the next few weeks, um, and we look forward to your continued engagement with us. Uh, for now, we will say uh, take care out there, uh, stay safe, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.